Hi, Camilla. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Um, I love this question. I feel very lucky. Well, I don't know if I feel... I. I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, so like in the prairies uh, in Canada. That part, definitely, I left when I was 18. Don't know as a teenager <laughs> if I felt so lucky. But I feel very lucky about what I got to eat. So uh, I had a set of grandparents um, in the country two hours north who gardened and on the farm that my mom grew up on. And so I got to eat a lot of homemade, homegrown food. and then. My grandparents in the city had uh, emigrated from Europe, um, and so they grew totally different varieties of stuff in their garden and made totally different homemade um, foods, and they were both delicious, and there was this huge variety. And then at home, which I think is unusual for a kid in the 80s, because um, my dad was the cook. Um, and I complain a lot looking back on it about during the period they're separated for seven years that my mom only made like five things. Um, but retrospectively, she, you know, was a working um, mom going to university and she made my five favorite things actually. So it was great. But my dad just <laughs> was a super creative cook. Uh, he never followed recipes and he shopped all over the city at uh, Asian grocery stores mostly. And um, he was a truck driver. So he'd go to the Italian store and the Mediterranean bakery and stuff. And they'd always be giving him things. I always try to give <laughs> delivery drivers something now, actually, for that reason. <laughs> Wait, what were your five favorite things that your mom made? <laughs> Lipton's chicken noodle soup, uh, Ichiban ramen, um, cheese tortellini with butter. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess this doesn't count as making and Little Caesars pizza and Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never had Little Caesars, but people tell me it's good. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, that's interesting. I used to eat, make cheese tortellini, um, and put nothing on it. It was one of those, the only oh. things I would make. Uh, for me and my brother, when during the summer when both my our parents were at work, I would just like boil the cheese tortellini and we would just eat it plain. Which is, is I I haven't <laughs> thought about how kind of odd that is. <laughs> but I didn't. I mean, whatever. We, I ate raw noodles yeah. and stuff, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the I, leap the to the butter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, the first thing I did after reading the introduction to your book, Jam Bake, uh, was look up your old band. Um, and, you know, it's always interesting because so many people in food have these like very interesting backstories to before food. Like, for some, like, it takes a while sometimes for people to get to food. Like, either you're really in it from like when you're a teenager or a kid, or else you like it's there's always these signposts along the way that food is your thing, but you don't listen until a little bit later. Um, but you know, you write a <laughs> you write about like be you know, touring with the band and everything you ate. And I, I, you know, I wanted to hear a little bit more about how that part of your life influenced your coming to food eventually. 
Well, actually, for me, it was a break in my food life. Okay. Um, because I, well, I moved to Montreal to go to university and then dropped out to go to pastry school. And then I, um, in pastry school, I joined a band um, and then started working in fancy restaurants and uh, had to quit for the first time because you can't leave uh, for two weeks when you're a pastry assistant. That's fully impossible um, <laughs> to go on a two week tour of the States, I remember. Um, but I'm so lucky that the, uh, owner pastry chef, co-owner pastry chef. There was like one of my mentors and he would always hire me back. <laughs> Very mm -hmm. lucky. But that then kicked <laughs> me out. And then I joined the one that had uh, some more success. And I think it was sort of a no brainer for me to leave on tour and like leave the culinary world for like five years. Um, just because I felt like I would never get that opportunity again. It's pretty amazing to be able to make records and tour right. around the world and stuff. Um, but at the same time, I came back and all my friends uh, had become like, open their own shops or become pastry chefs. And I was like, oh, my band broke up and now I'm coming back and I'm going to be <laughs> your assistant. <laughs> so it was, I'm glad I did it, but. Yeah, it was yeah. Um, an interlude, I guess you could say. Right, right, right. Well, what was it specifically? Because you're you're a master preserver. What was the it about that that was a specific attraction to you? Well, I th it has to do with both pastry and uh, being a touring musician. Actually, I think because mm -hmm. um, in pastry, so much of what we make is so ephemeral like you know we had to bake off new financier every day and stuff like that and they had a one day shelf life um so when I kind of discovered when I realized that I could start making my own preserves I was like whoa it's so satisfying to make something that I'm going to be able to um to enjoy like you know six months from now that seemed kind of magical to me um right. And also the same thing when I was on tour, I was like, uh, so infrequently home and I have mm -hmm. like so many fruits and vegetables that I'm obsessed with that it felt mm -hmm. like really important that I'd be able to like hoard the ones <laughs> that I really <laughs> cared about during those times when I was home. So, yeah. Um, well, can you tell me about the process of becoming a master preserver? What is that like? So it sounds a lot fancier <laughs> yeah. than it is. It's a really cool program that I wish existed in Canada and it doesn't. And it's like, it's funny, I often get billed as one of Canada's only master preservers, but that's just because that's not a Canadian program. And um, <laughs> when I was trying to, my frustration with like, as originally a self-taught preserver was always like, I always wanted to know more and why and how does this work? And I'm not allowed to change anything. Well, why? Like, you know, and no books seem to explain it. And so I really wanted to know more. And so I looked all over for um, a program, but a lot of them happen, um, you know, every second weekend or something. So it's not viable to travel for that or they, um, they only accept people from like residents of the county, stuff like that. But finally I found one uh, in New York state that was like a 
three or four day intensive. So I just booked a hotel and went down there. Um, <laughs> and for me, I'm really glad I did it. It was the two most charming women taught it. Um, and I did learn a lot, but it's about teaching people to be home preserving teachers, essentially. And for me, I had already started my business and I just really even wanted to know more. I wanted to know like everything. Um, (laughs) So after that, I got, I got some more education um, that really helped that like really wrapped it all up. And I felt pretty confident (laughs) after that. Right. And you know, how did you kind of develop the style that, came to be the book, you know, where you are making jam, but you're, you know, you're not just like putting the jam on a sandwich (laughs) on toast, you know, you're using the jam, like, how did you come to your style? Um, well, the concept for the book for jam bake is like, twofold, like I spent I so I ran an independent, like a little preserving company for in Montreal for Mm -hmm. seven years or so. and spent a lot of time behind tables at like craft fairs and farmers markets and stuff with people literally asking me what to do with it besides <laughs> put it on toast. And the answer was always obvious to me as a pastry chef. Um, but also, I think because of producing so much jam, like at a certain point, you sort of divorce yourself from the edibility of your products. I don't know if this happens to everyone, but I remember like working really late one night and just being starving, like so hungry and not ever cluing in that I was processing like a case of apples and that it'd be really reasonable (laughs) for me to eat one of those. But I stopped kind of viewing, you just have such a different relationship to your food at that point. And so it's very, it still remains actually very rare that I do eat jam on toast at all um <laughs> I do bake with a lot so I was like yeah that makes sense yeah, yeah. no it's funny because when I was uh, I used to do farmer's markets and stuff with like vegan cake and cookies oh, nice. and people would always be like how how do you not eat all of the cookies it's like because <laughs> I made them and so I'm it's like eating money looking at the- yeah it's like, <laughs> also. I'm like you know you have you really have that relationship to it where like you really see it as, you know, a product and not like a food. Like, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting thing that happens. Um, I, I like, still shame, don't really, but... it is a shame. I mean, I still don't really eat things that I bake. I've actually, I've been eating the shortbreads that I made out of your book this week, actually though, cause I've been like dying Ooh. for a snack uh, every couple of hours. So that's good. Um, and people love them. It's uh, a good snack. Way. Um, you know, preserving like is a complicated kind of science and people think of it as complicated and, you know, your book is very, very approachable. How did you develop your style of teaching when, you know, the conversation has to begin with, with botulism, but I guess that's how all food safety starts. It starts with botulism. <laughs> um, but, well, you know, how have you made, you know, this process approachable? Where, where, how did you kind of get into your own style of teaching? Um, well, for the most part, I made it up as I went. Like, to date, I've never really been to a cooking class, like, aside from ah. pastry school. So I was 
I, sh I really do intend to go see more of what people actually do. Um, but so I kind of made it up. I was really lucky uh, when I started out. I had um, uh, like a college teacher uh, volunteering, mm -hmm. assisting me to learn to preserve. And so she sat in on a lesson one night and like gave me pages of super helpful notes, <laughs> like getting people to introduce themselves, like easy stuff that hadn't occurred to right. me. But I think, I mean, this is going to be a decade of teaching preserving now. Um, and I think, I mean, it depends. My classes definitely aren't for everyone or, or the way my writing either. Certainly, like, I am really curious and I want to know exactly how preserving works so that I know, you know, what's safe and my like that's what I always wanted to know and could never find the answers to so I want to give that to people but some people show up mm -hmm. just wanting to like make some a jar of jam with their friends you know it's like mm -hmm. it's, there's so many different styles of cooking mm -hmm. classes out there and I realize that mine are heavy on the science and heavy you know on the info but I try and balance that by being heavy on the jokes um right <laughs> And I, I, I just think it's so interesting. And I, and the whole goal also is for me, like if I can't be creative, that's the most important thing in my life, I think. And so I want to give that gift to people because so often canning is preserving generally is seen as something has to be really formulaic and um, you know, otherwise it's dangerous. But if you understand the science behind it then you can change things and know that it's safe and so I want that's like the gift I want to give to people is to be able to right. judiciously use some creativity when they're making preserves um but I also sure. want to lower I mean my other big goal is to lower um like barriers to access <laughs> but what the other thing I really just want to communicate about my teaching skills that that the idea there is I just I know a lot of people are intimidated by canning and I think that's such a shame because mm -hmm. for me it's such like a deep pleasure the process of it the knowing I have a cupboard full of jars the connection to my ancestors um and so is this thing that really connects people, I think, to their food ways and to their, it's just seasonality, certainly, and, you know, sometimes to their histories. So I just want people to know that, like, it, it, I try as much as possible to make it as easy as possible, to make it, like, as adaptable as possible, like, time-wise, ways to, like, break it up, ways to fit it into your life, um, because I know everyone's overworked now. Um, ways to like get by with the most minimal equipment uh like hopefully none so like lower economic barriers all of that stuff I think is so important and I try and um and also just the um, uh, the real encouragement that like the it, it takes practice is the thing mm -hmm. it, like anything else and you're never going to or maybe you are good at it the first time, but like just it's something that's simply improved by um, repetition. Um, and so people should stick with it. 
<laughs> so I just want to encourage people as much as possible. That's my teaching philosophy. Right. Well, it's a good one. Um, yeah, I definitely need to get into it. And I always have these intentions of getting into it. Like I have every, you know, Sandor Katz book so that I could learn how to make pickles. Yeah. And I'm excited about your book having it so I can make jams with like different fruits that obviously like here the fruit is so hyper seasonal, like very, very short windows for things mm -hmm. like guava and, and passion fruit. And, and, you know, it's, it would make so much sense for me to preserve them. And <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the things people are afraid of in preserving and making jam and, you know, why are why are those things I mean this might be a technical question but like what what are the things that people are afraid of why are they afraid of them you know how how likely is it that you know things are going to go wrong actually Um, I mean, certainly people come to class uh, definitely being afraid of botulism because that's the like big, scary, fatal one. Um, I have had um, like people attend the class who have given themselves botulism uh, and their friends. So it's not impossible, um, but it's very close to impossible when we're talking about jam. Um, he made water bath canned pesto which is Ooh. a low acid food that should not be water bath canned. Yeah. I'd be surprised <laughs> if any of his friends ever eat his preserves again. Um, <laughs> but good for him for coming back to a class. But, but with jam, like that's the thing. That's why I think it's such a shame that actually like the uh, North American um, way that we're taught to can jam at home is to do the whole boiling water bath thing because it's so unnecessary um, and I think it prevents a lot of people from doing it. Um, the possibility that like botulism is almost completely a moot point. You, uh, there's a few fruits that I talk about that you can't use, but otherwise the main thing worth dealing with the possibility of is mold. Of course, if your jars are like improperly sealed or sterilized, um, which we know is gross, of course. And if you scrape it off, it's not gone either. That's a good thing to know. I call it informed consent in the book. But whether or not you're going to eat it. But um, at the same time, like uh, the toxicity of it, unless you have an allergy, like at home, you can just scrape it off and probably you'll be fine. So uh, there's hardly anything that can go wrong that's like, you know, catastrophic. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, in, in the book, you mentioned some things in passing, like how our grandparents' tomatoes were more acidic, like North American expectations around jam texture and how your recipes are different to that. So I wanted to ask about your kind of food philosophy, so to speak, you know, what is your approach to sourcing ingredients uh, and how you, how you decide, you know, what to eat? Um, I mean, I think I was shaped a lot uh, working in fine dining. I'm really lucky that I got to work. Um, I think I say it in the introduction of the book, but I went to work at a vegetable-focused restaurant um, mm -hmm. 
for my stage in pastry school in like 2002, I guess it would have been. Um, and I got told that that was like a fad and it, like I shouldn't go there. And not only is that pastry chef now like probably the most well-known in the in Quebec, but, you know, obviously we all know that vegetable-focused dining is uh, here to stay. Let's hope. Um, so, you know, uh, there was such a focus around seasonality. We changed the menu so much. Um, so that really shaped me as a young cook. Um, like I, I would never, I don't, I know it sounds kind of, I, I mean, it, it is what it is. I won't touch a strawberry basically that's, that's imported, that's out of season. Like I, yeah. I just, why would I eat that when, you know, strawberry season is for enjoying strawberries and then like I don't need access to all things at all times definitely that was like a real challenge running um like a preserving business um you know with very little capital um so a lot of the time I, I uh ended up having to like resort to uh frozen fruits sometimes and stuff like that just to keep up with demand and be able to make enough just to stay afloat, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so in that way, like when I'm teaching, certainly I don't ever, um, I want to encourage people to use like whatever they can use and is accessible mm -hmm. to them. I think that's important, but for me, it's really important to as much as possible be, um, be working. I mean, in a perfect world, uh, with <laughs> farmers and stuff like that. Um, with seasonal ingredients mm -hmm. and, and using also as much of the the food as possible. I mean, I think I learned that working in a, I don't remember there being a conversation around food waste when I was a cook like in the early two thousands, but it was just mm -hmm. like a, you had to do it because the margins are so thin that, you know, we, we had to use as much as we possibly could. So, you know, the strawberries that were getting sad got steamed and turned into juice and that went to the champagne cocktail or whatever. Like we didn't throw anything away as much as possible. So that really got ingrained as me as well. Like I make jelly and I save the, you know, fruit pulp and I put it in my kombucha and, you know, as much as possible. Right. And, and you know, is that... What is it like to support local food in, in Canada? Because, you know, we can, I talk, I think, so much about it in a U.S. context, but, like, what is your, like, the relationship to agriculture there? Um, I mean, definitely we have shorter seasons, certainly, mm -hmm. um, than the majority of America. So in that can be challenging in some senses, you know, at a certain point what you have that's local is like overwintered root vegetables <laughs> uh, and apples and stuff like that. But I mean, I think it varies all over the country, but like I, and I'm new to this relatively new to the city I live in. Um, but there's, there's just a lot of like in the city I'm in, there's so, so many farmers markets, there's farmers markets, every day probably in multiple places um so you have so much access to buying directly from farmers um mm -hmm. 
which I think is really important. There are cool like businesses that have come up. There's one I'm really obsessed with where you can order stuff. Um, they liaise directly with farmer farmers and then um, pick, I think, and deliver straight to you. Um, different organizations like that. I think, I think, I, I mean, it's so hard, at least in the circles I'm in, I think it's quite um, possible to be, certainly in the summer, to be buying like all local, basically. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Wait, where are you living right now? I live in Toronto. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so my favorite. Oh, um, well, I don't know how it is as a visitor. I I really like living here. I mean, it's one of it's one of the most expensive cities in Canada. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's very challenging about living here. But um, and actually, the market I just discovered a market that sells like I'm did most of my spent a lot of my life in Montreal, where there's like a real mm-hmm. culture of um, preserving food and transforming mm-hmm. food. And I lived right by the market where they sell like all the bushels of things. And in summer, you just buy huge quantities and everyone's doing it. And here it's like a lot of people in condos and all the farmers markets sell just pints of things. That's the uh. biggest amount you can get. <laughs> it's been confounding me since I moved here. So I just got a tip off on like a more old school market. Um, that does the real, the real <laughs> granny stuff that I'm very looking forward to visiting on Saturday. Nice. Well, for you, is cooking well, a political you, act? A political act. Um, I think yes. I mean, in as much as everything, I think in a sense that we do is so undergirded by all of these systems, and um, you know, there's so much potential in the um, like the path of where our food is grown and like all the ways it comes to our kitchens and our tables for like um, abuse and injustice and like um, so yes I think you know certainly it's political I think a lot of I try and make good choices obviously Mm -hmm. we're um Mm -hmm. we're all in such different um we just all have such different access whether it's like uh financially or mobily or all these different things to be able to make um you know the the most ideal choices right Mm -hmm. um but yeah definitely I think it is and you know just in a broader sense I suppose it's not exactly political but what I think drew me to cooking besides loving to eat obviously um is just the spirit of generosity that I think well hospitality generally has um and I think I mean I think we really saw it in the pandemic um so much with, you know, there's so many pastry chefs raising money and stuff like that. Um, because I think that is the, um, the spirit. I mean, there's so many things obviously <laughs> wrong with the industry. Like obviously hospitality as being like a pure expression of generosity is not the reality <laughs> as is so often the case. But I do think that that is where, 
a lot of people are coming from uh, at the heart of it. Um, hopefully. <laughs> I struggle a lot with, um, like, I do think cooking's political. I don't, I struggle a lot with what, with whether what I'm doing is like explicitly political mm -hmm. enough. Um, I, like so many of the people around me, um, like my partner and my friends have like these very concrete jobs where they're obviously helping people like harm reduction workers and nurses and midwives and doctors and stuff that I get insecure sometimes that, you know, uh, what I do is like indulgent and unnecessary and all these things. But I think, I really think that's not true. <laughs> um, and I think, um, I mean, I think people need delicious, beautiful things in their lives. But also, like I said, I try and bring the um, spirit of like really wanting to you know, bring people in and, um, be able to, I mean, obviously because I'm a business also <laughs> that complicates matters, of course. Um, but you know, if anyone ever wrote me and said they wanted to take a class and they didn't have enough money, I mean, I tell them, of course, you know, um, but yeah, right. it's hard. It's hard. I try on, I try and as much as I can, um, you know, be um, donating portions of um, sales from classes and stuff to things um, and trying to engage politically through my work uh, as much as I can. But I guess, I guess it never feels like enough because everything's just so messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then just politically, I mean, it's the end of Pride Month, right? Which I think should maybe isn't always anymore, but is a political, um, is a political thing. And I'm queer and I think like visibility is so important, uh, and representation. And like, I, I didn't know any hardly queer cookbook authors I think um you know when I was a younger cook and so there's also like the struggle to balance like to I want that I I'm not someone that people like easily identify as being queer and I think uh I struggle with that a bit and wanting to represent my community but also like you know uh not it never came up much in my book because you know it's about jam making and uh it it only came up as much I think as it's just a natural part of me and thank you so, so much yeah so yes, so yes, is <laughs> my question, but it's also complicated. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much again for taking the time. Oh, thank you. It's I'm just such a big fan of you. It's a real <laughs> pleasure. To, I feel very excited. Thank you so much.